0: And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, I want to thank all of you out there. Your support has kept us going. If you would like to help us continue to grow, please tell a friend or family member about us. Heck, rip their phone out of their hand and subscribe them to our podcast. (laughs) No, seriously. Another great way to support us is to help us with our costs. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a Patreon member. Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P A T R E O N.com, slash Ohio Mysteries to learn how. When you donate, it will open you up to our extra content. Now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. It's time for a brand new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and researcher, who is an award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal,
1: Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Philip Taylor Kramer, he went by his middle name, Taylor, had two passions, and he made room in his life for both of them. The Youngstown native taught himself to play guitar, and he became the bassist for the acid rock band, Iron Butterfly, best known for its 1968 masterpiece, Inagata De Vita. He enjoyed a few years recording and touring and living the rock star life. But Taylor was also a science and math prodigy, and when his music career began to fade, he got a degree in aerospace engineering and became a contractor on top-secret government nuclear projects. In his 30s, he became an entrepreneur, launching his own business to pursue his inventions. By his 40s, he was suggesting to his colleagues that he was close to helping the world take a giant leap toward the speed of light. However, there is so much about Taylor's life and mind that we don't understand which is why his disappearance and the later discovery of his remains are so clouded in mystery. Whether he ultimately committed suicide, as authorities believe, or was abducted and killed by people after his life's work, as his family claims, Taylor took many secrets to his grave. Tonight, we give you the story of Philip Taylor Kramer. Taylor was born on July the 12th, 1952, in Youngstown, the youngest of three siblings. His dad, Ray Kramer, was a professor and chair of the electrical engineering department at Youngstown State University. Taylor grew up intrigued by what his dad did. Ray Kramer was always teaching his children how things worked. As the U.S. and Russia embarked on the space race, trying to be the first to send up a satellite and then get a man beyond Earth's atmosphere. Taylor would listen to his dad explain the technology behind it all. He couldn't get enough. In 1964, at the age of 12, Taylor and his dad built a laser with a beam strong enough to shoot down balloons. He took first place at the Liberty School Science Fair that year. His dad's work also had this mystique about it. Taylor often saw his dad bent over a notepad, scribbling figures. When he asked about it, his dad would tell him he was working on the equation, a formula that would unlock the world and give us a better understanding of the cosmos. Now, while Taylor nurtured this left brain, which is always said to be associated with logic and science, he was equally strong with his right brain, the mythical center of the creative arts. Taylor taught himself to play guitar, and as a teenager, he formed a band called The Concepts. They jammed together in his dad's garage. And at 18, Taylor, a standout in any crowd, at 6 foot 5 inches tall, a strapping build, and riveting blue eyes, decided to pursue a career in music. In 1974, he moved to Los Angeles, and there he met Ron Bushy, the drummer of Iron Butterfly. Now, Iron Butterfly had already peaked by this time. They rode high after their huge hit, "Anagata De Vida, which sold millions. When Taylor was brought on board as their bassist, they were struggling, but were fired up to try and reach the charts again. Taylor grew his hair long, but it was only to play the role. He avoided the excesses of the culture, staying away from drugs and keeping himself fit with a thousand sit ups a day. He and Ron Bushy, his new best friend, would sit up all night at a Denny's in Northridge to write songs and he spent the next three years touring with the band. Now, the band released their albums Scorching Beauty and Sun and Still while Taylor was with them, and fans came back for a time. But Iron Butterfly never regained its former glory. Taylor spent another three years with the group Magic and Gold, founded by Ron Bushy after Iron Butterfly. But Taylor was not a man willing to be mired in mediocrity. It was time to move on. In 1980, he cut his hair, put on a suit, and went back to school to pursue the other big passion in his life. He got a degree in aerospace engineering from Western States College of Engineering in Inglewood, California. Having demonstrated his brilliance for science, The Northrop Corp., one of the biggest contractors for the U.S. Department of Defense, hired him and set him to work on covert projects. He had to swear a national security oath. His assignments were so secret, he had to build a visual barrier around his office cubicle because even his colleagues weren't permitted to see what he was working on. Turned out, he was fine-tuning the guidance system for the MX nuclear warhead missile, designed to hit targets half a world away. Taylor was paid handsomely for his work, but then, in 1987, Taylor married his wife, Jennifer, and took on the job of helping to raise her son, Derek. Three years after their marriage, they added a daughter, Haley, to their family. It was time for a more normal, less stressful job and a schedule more in line with his new passion, being a family man. And so Taylor left Northrop. He worked in the computer industry on facial recognition systems, fractal compression, and advanced communications. Then he began his own tech company. Taylor struggled to find a focus for his company. He and his hired team spent years on various projects looking for their big breakthrough. And then, in 1991, Taylor teamed up with Michael Jackson's little brother, Randy Jackson, in a new enterprise called Total Multimedia Inc., TMM. They did pioneering work in video compression technology. That's what allowed the first CD-ROMs capable of playing full motion video. Taylor hired his dad, Ray, as a scientist-in-residence. During this time, Taylor and his family lived in a nice neighborhood in the L.A. suburb of Thousand Oaks. He had a big house with a pool set in a scenic canyon. He was a doting dad to Haley, now five years old, and Derek, now 13. He was a loving husband, always starting the day by serving coffee in bed to Jennifer. He was known and liked in his community He'd formed a nonprofit to help his daughter's school improve their technology, and worked with the school of his stepson, who had a learning disability, to test a new multimedia curriculum. Things were going well for a little while. You see, Taylor, like his father, had always been reaching for the stars, and both he and his dad became obsessed with studying gravitational waves and particles to determine whether transmission was possible faster than the speed of light. Taylor was a big picture guy. His favorite saying was, given all time, all things are possible. But it also had the effect of making Taylor at times seem scatterbrained, the way visionaries often fail to pay attention to small details. Once, he boarded a plane thinking he was headed to a meeting in Atlanta and ended up in Hawaii. No, Taylor would much rather be poring over the universal equations that fueled his soul. Problem was, that kind of work didn't pay the bills. His company's investors wanted Taylor spending his time on inventions and advancements that were practical and sellable, not some fantastical goal. Company executives fought over the direction of the firm. Morale among employees plummeted, and by 1994, TMM had to file for bankruptcy. In 1995, Taylor was 42 years old and burning the candle at both ends, working during the day, staying up all night to fiddle with his elusive speed of light formula. Later, his family would say he went two weeks without sleep. He was also under pressure for another reason. He was hiding a secret that his family didn't know. He'd taken out thousands of dollars in loans to pay his salary, a debt that he couldn't pay back.
0: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on.
1: On February 11, 1995, he visited his father, Ray, and confessed he only had 40 cents in his pocket. He'd promised he'd take his kids out for a bite to eat and asked for some cash. Ray thought his son really needed something else. He later told a reporter, He was exhausted, burned out, shot. I laughed and told him, Go home and get some sleep. While well, Taylor went home that night, but not to his bed. His wife found him working into the early morning on his mathematical calculations. Then, after the sun rose that morning of Sunday, February the 12th, Taylor kissed his wife and headed out to run some errands. He first stopped at a medical center to visit his father-in-law, a cancer patient there, in a very strange encounter Taylor gave him a kaleidoscope a child's toy really and told him it's all right there i know you don't understand but it's all right there to this day nobody understood the gift or the cryptic message then taylor was off to the lax airport to pick up greg martini and his wife martini a fellow ohioan who lived in cincinnati had invested in Taylor's new company with Randy Jackson. He was also the prime instigator in getting the company reorganized under bankruptcy, and he was coming to town to shake some things up. That's when something inexplicable happened. Taylor drove into the airport parking lot, alone in his green Aerostar van. 45 minutes later, he drove out, without the Martinis. With only that 40 cents in his pocket, he couldn't even afford the $3 parking fee and had to sign an IOU. Taylor then used his cell phone to call Jennifer and told her that when Greg Martini called to ask where he was, to tell him to take a cab to the Westlake Hyatt, he said he would meet the Martinis and Jennifer at the hotel lobby at 2 p.m., and explain everything. He finished the call, telling Jennifer, I have the biggest surprise for you, and then adding, I'm not going to see you on this side. It wasn't his last phone call. As a matter of fact, he made 16 more phone calls that morning to various friends and associates. Strange calls. He called his friend, Ron Bushy, and left a message on his voicemail. Bush it's Taylor I love you more than life itself then hung up and then 1 minute before noon somewhere in the San Fernando Valley driving on the Ventura Highway Taylor dialed 911 he calmly gave his name and told the dispatcher he planned to kill himself Taylor told the dispatcher one other thing you see He had been hired to analyze and verify the authenticity of a videotape that was going to be used in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Apparently, he was referring to this when he told the dispatcher, and I want everyone to know O.J. Simpson is innocent. They did it. After that strange declaration, Taylor hung up. Jennifer Kramer didn't know any of this and so that afternoon she and Greg sat in the hotel lobby waiting for Taylor to arrive. He never did. What followed was a national search. Jennifer and Taylor's family passed out missing persons flyers. The Ventura County Sheriff's Department dispatched a helicopter to search the Santa Monica Mountains and the San Fernando Valley. News shows, daytime talk shows, and programs like Unsolved Mysteries and the Unexplained all did stories on the missing entrepreneur. Calls came in from all over California. He was seen in a soup kitchen at a school bus stop, walking a Santa Monica pier, buying lunch at Burger King. One intriguing call came from a couple at a grocery store in Agora Hills who said a tall man approached them asking for money to call his family. They thought he looked like the man in the news. What made this one stand out to Taylor's family is he told the couple he only had 40 cents in his pocket, the very same amount he had mentioned to his dad the day before he vanished. Taylor's sister, Kathy Kramer Peterson, flew to LA from Youngstown to aid in the search. She worried her brother had had a breakdown. He was so excited about his work that he was calling math sacred, she said. I worried that he was having visions. He talked of supernovas, earthquakes, all events having no coincidence. Even Jennifer Kramer, at the time, admitted the possibility. She said, he's out there, but his mind is gone. Throughout all of this, Taylor's credit cards and bank accounts went untouched by him. But then came a call that gave the Kramer family new hope. The phone rang at the Thousand Oaks home, and Jennifer picked up. There was breathing, and then a man's voice saying, Hello? 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 Jennifer was certain it was Taylor. Confident her husband was still alive, she and his family put out a new effort to find him. L.A. police figured he must have walked away from his life. Officer Chuck Carter, who worked the case back then, told a reporter at the time, Something happened either in his head or at the terminal, that made him turn away. And I'll tell you, I haven't a clue. The guy didn't have an enemy. The guy was a dedicated family man. I checked him out. Whatever happened in his head while at the airport, or whatever happened right in the airport, I've got a feeling we'll learn from Kramer himself. And then came the news That Kramer would never be able to explain himself. On May the 29th, 1999, two men were hiking through Decker Canyon north of Malibu, California. The area was a dumping ground and had lots of vehicles that had been stripped for parts. One of the hikers, Walter Lockwood, was an amateur photographer who liked photographing abandoned vehicles. One in particular caught his eye, a nineteen ninety three green Ford Aerostar van. It was directly below the street, its window smashed and body crumpled as if it had soared off the edge of the canyon road. When Lockwood got closer to the car, He saw it wasn't empty. There was a pale white bone sticking through the driver's side window. And just outside the window, a skull that had decomposed, detached, and fallen to the ground. Police responding to their 911 call found Philip Taylor Kramer's ID in the van. Within hours, Jennifer learned her husband was dead and had been dead for a long, long time. The coroner determined the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. There was no way to be sure if it was caused by the car falling to the ground or some event that took place before the accident. But authorities ruled it likely suicide, especially in light of that 911 call that Taylor had made the day he disappeared but there's something about that 911 call I haven't told you about. Taylor had told both his wife Jennifer and his dad Ray that he feared someone was coming after him, that someone wanted to steal the ideas he had spent a lifetime working on. He told Jennifer they should move and build high walls around a new home to protect themselves. And he told his dad this that if his family was ever told he committed suicide, not to believe it, that it was a sign that he was in trouble. So when Ray originally learned about the 911 call, he saw it as a communication from his son that perhaps Taylor was followed at LAX airport, and that's why he left without waiting for Greg. He theorized Taylor had been drugged and abducted by business rivals, maybe a foreign government. Whether the threat was real or imagined, clearly Taylor had been terrified. But it's also hard to dismiss that Taylor was troubled and in deep financial straits. Also, that his decision-making abilities may have been impaired by his lack of sleep and his growing obsession with a formula that nobody else really understood. There was one other thing going on in Taylor's life that may or may not be relevant. The year before he disappeared, the book The Celestine Prophecy was a huge hit. It would spend three years on the New York Times bestsellers list. The book told of a man's search for nine mystical insights— which led to a stunning revelation about life itself. Taylor was fixated on the book. His company even hired a new president who swore by the Celestine principles. He even brought in a shaman to cleanse the room of negative energy before staff meetings. Colleagues closest to Taylor accepted it all as part of Taylor's quirky thinking process— They didn't want to hamper his creative spirit, and if that's what he needed, then so be it. But after late nights of him raving about his speed of light research and telling a couple of his partners he believed they were brothers from a previous life, they wondered if they had let it go too far. If you haven't read The Celestine Prophecy, The idea is that as a person finds and masters each mystical insight they move closer to the magical thread that runs through everything in the universe. Eventually the practitioner becomes a being of pure spiritual energy as their atoms vibrate at higher and higher levels. In the end they simply disappear. To give credit I used a dozen sources for this episode, but I did want to call particular attention to a very thorough story The Washington Post did back in 1996.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.